This is Still Standing with Michael Caputo, episode 32. Coming up on today's show, my family's meeting with the President and First Lady, as well as my thoughts on William Barr and what's next on a day when William Barr is testifying before the Senate. No talking points, no spin, it's politics you can't put down. This is Still Standing with Michael Caputo. Hello, welcome to Still Standing with Michael Caputo. I'm Michael. I appreciate you listening in, I truly do. Uh, we're now deep into what? I think something like almost half a year, a little, a little more than half a year of... Uh, still standing. I appreciate you signing on and listening in. Uh, we do a little bit of video, a little bit of a, a weekly audio, uh, a video a couple times a month, maybe a little more than that, a little blogging now and then over at stillstandingpodcast.com. You can go over there and check out the different content I put up there. Um, you know, uh, I'm actually in at WBEN as a fill-in talk show host this week, uh, WBEN Buffalo and um, working three hours a day live on the air, and I, I'm I'm really enjoying it. Uh, I uh, always have, but I, I the the gentleman who I normally sit in for, Sandy Beach, who's a legend of radio in Buffalo, um, used to I remember him uh, being a DJ when I was really young. Um, uh, he uh, he gives me two or three weeks a year to sit in for him, and I really uh, it's an honor for me. I I find myself in a great conversation with the people of Buffalo. We also get a lot of listeners from around the country. People who listen to still standing will, uh, you know, check me out on Facebook or Twitter and notice that I've posted that I'm up at WBEN and they check it out via, uh, via internet. That's WBEN.com. I'm on for the next two weeks. I miss a, a day or two because of doctor's appointments or meetings. But it's really what I like to do. I really like this radio thing, this audio thing. I definitely have the face for radio, as they say. The last week, I didn't do my podcast. I apologize for that. I know a couple of people have mentioned that to me via email and even on the cell phone. But I had a really big week last week. I, you probably noticed I did a couple of other people's podcasts. Um, on Mondays, my family and I were were Monday of last week after Easter. My family and I were packing up to go down to the Mid-Atlantic region to visit with some friends to take my children, my two daughters. My third, my first daughter, uh, 17-year-old Maribel, is actually in school and had her spring break at a different time. And uh, my two, my four-year-old and six-year-old, their spring break was at the time, uh, you know, last week. And so we decided to uh, head to the Washington area. Another reason was my mother-in-law, Nina is her name. She's from Cherkasy, Ukraine. She had been in town helping our family through this Mueller investigation for several months and has been looking forward to going home. And now that the, the report has been filed and there is no collusion, no obstruction. Only thing that bothered us was I was dragged into the obstruction, dis I'm sorry, the collusion discussion, hoax, all of it, the Russia hoax. Uh, so she was around for a while to helping us to, you know, make sure the kids get off to school. And despite all my travel and such to Washington and the work with the attorneys and all the expenses, 
you wouldn't know how much this costs until it finally happens to you. And you figure out that, you know, a lot of the stuff you pay for around the house that you might not, uh, I'm sorry, a lot of stuff you pay for around the house, you might not if you uh, had a sudden cut in your revenues, your income, which happened to us. Of course, my, my company suffered a bit. We lost a lot of clients and uh, financially it was pretty damaging. But so Monday, we're packing up to go to Washington, out of the Washington area. We're going to stay, stay with some friends out in Virginia. And uh, my phone call, my phone, my cell phone rings. And it's got this 000 number, which didn't pop up in my head as to what it should be. I actually almost didn't answer it because I thought it was, you know, one of those telemarketers or recorded calls. But it was uh, Madeline from the president's office. And uh, I, I had... Uh, uh, I knew her, I believe I did anyway, at least I met her during the campaign, during the transition. And I knew that she was the president's uh, uh, assistant and she offered, you know, said that the president was on the line. That was a real surprise for me. Uh, we were packing the car, literally. The kids were getting ready to come, uh, you know, they were getting dressed to go in the car, you know, the car seats and all that stuff. Eight hours with two little girls, a mother-in-law and a wife, the Griswolds. As you would imagine, uh, we ride around in a Ford Flex, which is like the modern day station, you know, Griswold station wagon, right? And Madeline says, hold on for the president. And the president comes on the phone, which really blew my mind. I, I got to tell you, I did not expect that. I had hoped for it, frankly, but, you know, uh, and I hadn't sp spoken to the president since inauguration day. Um, we couldn't. I'm quite certain his attorneys told him not to. My attorneys told me not to call the president, even though we we talked to each other on the phone, um, you know, not infrequently, you know, in the years leading up to the 2016 election. I worked with them on the uh, Republican governor's flirtation on his purchase of the Buffalo Bills, other discussions. And uh, boy, when inauguration hit and then the first hearing where my family was brought up by Representative Smear on the Intelligence Committee in a public hearing on March 20th. Boom, we went from, our family went from hopeful with the new presidency and what, you know, what we might be able to do to serve the president to absolutely, basically, going into, the, uh, into Siberia. You had to. You don't want to be in the president's call list. When the investigators ask you, when was the last time you talked to the president, you want to be able to say, you know, Inauguration Day, because the next question is something else entirely. But if you say Tuesday, well, the next 30 questions are about what the president said to you. Well, anyway, so we hadn't talked for two years plus. And, uh, and so the president rang in. Uh, he was really, I would say, sympathetic about what had happened to me and my family during this investigation. Actually, kind of apologetic. It's not. I understand that it's not the president's fault that this happened, that this politically commissioned Russia investigation, the whole hoax, uh, was was pulled on Donald Trump like some kind of joke, some kind of attack. You know, uh, I don't blame him at all. I don't blame the first lady, but. We talked for a bit on the telephone, and the president understood that we were going to Washington and invited me and my wife and my mother-in-law and my two little daughters to come to the White House. I thought, what a thrill, right? We packed up the car. We were only on the phone for five, six minutes, of course. But my family packed up the car, and we were on the road, and 
And uh, on Tuesday, uh, after going to the museums and all the other stuff you do in Washington with your kids, you know, I got a call from Madeline late in the day on Tuesday. Uh, please come on Wednesday at 10, 15 or something like that. And fast forward, that's exactly what we did. The night before we had to go out. Oh, gosh, it was probably like 930. Our daughters, uh, four and six years old, didn't have didn't have proper shoes to go to the White House, I'll be honest. Um, their, their dress shoes, what they might've worn as dress shoes were pretty tattered as, you know, they're, uh, they're just growing out of them. You know, kids go through shoes like so fast and we really weren't thinking ahead and th- saying, well, we may be going to the white house. We frankly thought the call itself was really, that was great. Get, hearing from the president made me feel like, uh, you know, we're still kind of in the mix and that, uh, he understood deeply what went on between my, you know, the Mueller investigation and all of us families. There's probably 40, maybe even 50 people caught up as witnesses, not targets, not subjects of the investigation, but witnesses like, you know, J.D. Gordon and, uh, you know, Carter Page and Waleed Ferris, and the, the list goes on and on and on, and there's a variety of torture that these people have been through. You think of what happened to Carter Page and his business and, you know, it's gone. The guy's been wiped out. J.D. Gordon, um, the media has absolutely dusted J.D. Gordon. The lies that have been told about him by the Washington Post and others, just lies. And, uh, you know, all the other people in this investigation, not just me. In fact, I think we were treated better than most of these folks. Poor J.D. and Carter have been just harangued. And mine was only, what, you know, Four-fifths of a page of the report on page 61 in the Mueller report. I'll go down in history. Uh, but I think J.D. was was brought up something like 90 times in the report. What an absolute travesty for nothing, for absolutely nothing. So anyway, it was good to know that the president was thinking about us. All of us have been kind of wondering, listen, even though I spoke to JD a bit because he, you know, we became friends because I I helped him with his legal fees with my my GoFundMe, we raised a lot of money at GoFundMe and I paid a lot of people's legal fees. Uh, JD was the first. Uh, most of the other folks I didn't talk to very much, and we're all kind of like, you know, Japanese soldiers with the bedraggled beard and torn up uniforms coming out of the jungle at the end of the war after hiding. <laughs> squinting at the sun, you know, we're all that way. Every single one of these witnesses who have been, you know, to a wide range of, let's say, uh, what, uh, radioactivity, right? You couldn't work in the administration. You're being interviewed by all these investigators, House, Senate, Mueller. So when the president called, that made me feel good. It was good to know that he was thinking about us. That would have been just fine. When he was inviting us into the White House, I thought how great that would be. But how are they going to shoehorn us in, all these kids, my wife, etc., in the middle of a business day? I mean, they have a lot of other stuff to do. We didn't expect to hear, but we did. And Wednesday, we went in. You go through a lot of security on the way in. By the way, my daughter, Leah, four years old, initially refused to go in. She wouldn't go in. She said it was going to be boring. <laughs> My four-year-old is such a pill. She was going to be boring. I don't want to go to the White House. It's going to be boring. And my six-year-old, she's so affable. She'll she'll go anywhere. Yeah, sure. Let's go over there. Why not? But, you know, after the thing was over, I asked them <laughs> what was their favorite thing about the trip to Washington and meeting the president didn't even go up in the top five. 
But we did. We met the president and the first lady, and and uh, uh, Kellyanne Conway was in there, and Dan Scavino, who was my office mate in Trump Tower, he was there. He's in charge of social media. He's such an expert in Twitter and such. And uh, it was great to talk to him. We were there for 35 minutes. Can you imagine? And I'm actually not going to go into chapter and verse of what we discussed because, you know, in theory, I'd like to continue to getting these kind of phone calls, right? And if all you're doing is gossiping about the president, what he said to you after you've had your meeting, you're not going to get a lot of these calls. But uh, the president was really upbeat. Um, all the stories about him mumbling and grousing around the White House like he's some kind of anger management problem. It's, he was absolutely elated. The entire time we were there, he was in a great mood. He was laughing and high-fiving my girls. and my Little Leah, my four-year-old, wound up and gave him a pop when he reached down to high-five her. That's her, that's her thing. She gives it a wind-up and pops you with a high-five. <laughs> I, I just almost died. When, he put his, when the president put his hand down and said high-five, I thought, uh-oh, here she goes. And sure enough, she wound up and gave him a pop. <laughs> He has a great mood. If he's supposed to be angry about potential impeachment or the Mueller report or whatever, you know, Don McGahn said or whatever, could have fooled me. He was in a really good mood. Great mood. And, he, you know, we talked about the report. We talked about the investigation. We talked about what's next. And I can't tell you what we said or, you know, unless he called me up and said, tell the world, I wouldn't tell you. But I can tell you this, what the president has in store for these conspirators who commission this investigation for political reasons those who participated in the Obama's the Obama administration's weaponization of the of the uh, you know the national security apparatus to spy upon the Republican candidate for president of the United States all those people better strap in because they are in for a ride the ride of their life buckle up my friends I think of the usual names that you do, you know, Comey, Clapper, uh, Brennan, oh gosh, uh, all the people involved in, in, in Maine Justice, all the people involved in the political appointments of, of the FBI, all the leaders of Obama's national security, I'm, Susan Rice, let's not forget Susan Rice, Samantha Power, what is their role in all of this? I can't wait to find out, and I trust the president to do exactly that. What a great time it was. Afterward, you know, my wife has really taken the brunt of this thing in my family. Um, I laugh about it. I try and make light of it. But what's happened to my family, what's happened to all these families, is really despicable. The people who did it, they did it with glee. And then, of course, the dozens and dozens of threats against your family. Death threats, some of them. I put two guys, I've had two guys charged in the last month. One locally here in Buffalo, one in Buffalo Grove, Illinois. I probably will get one from every Buffalo-related town in the country, right? <laughs> it's hard to joke about that kind of stuff, you know? There's a wide variety of threats to come through to you, but all of us have gotten them. And you just want to remember a time when you didn't get a death threat regularly and you didn't have to track them down to see if you could find them and prosecute them just so they don't come and kill you, you know? After all that, my wife, you know, my wife even got a, a piece of a sniper rifle in the mail. That was a bad day. Our local police department are heroes to us. Their detective has been so tremendous in helping us keep this these threats 
in hand and gain a confidence level that we can live at peace. But the president knew chapter and verse of what had happened to us. I thought that was wild. I did. You know, that's really what struck me. The president knew chapter and verse of what happened to us. He gave us details. You know, you go talk to the president of the United States, you know, it's not often. I've been in meetings with previous presidents. I've known the President Trump for a little while, right? You don't sit there and expect the president to tell you your story. But he did. He knew what happened to us. It's very clear he's paying attention to what's going on with the families that are have been, you know, absolutely steamrollered by this whole investigation. And the first lady, let me tell you something. Well, let me let me dispense with this first. The president understood that my wife has borne a lot of this weight. He clearly understood. I know that now because he talked directly to my wife for a good amount of the time we were in that meeting. He was very complimentary of me and you know recalling our friendship and the things that we had done in the past, but assuring my wife that you know basically I had not done the wrong thing by signing up for the Trump for president campaign that got me caught into this Russia hoax, the Russia investigations, the House and the Senate and the Mueller team. He's he he told her many things that buoyed her spirits. I don't want to go into it and be too. Uh, you know, revealed too much. It was a private conversation. But afterward, my wife was quiet for a couple of hours. And uh, I'll tell you, uh, she said, it's okay now. Two hours later, she said, it's okay. All the things we had gone through, all the time she had warned me to please be more careful, and I should have been. She never has ever told me, I told you so, although she had every right to. And, uh, uh, you know, Melania, uh, the first lady, was there, and my wife was so pleased to meet the first lady, and so was my mother-in-law. My daughters were agog because, of course, the first lady came down looking like $150 million in this beautiful dress, and she had this gorgeous perfume on that day. Um, it was an amazing scent. I, I really have to find it because my wife really fell in love with it. Maybe I'll try and find out what she was wearing. But she was so kind to my wife and my mother-in-law and so so sympathetic as well in this investigation. She told me that she wa- you know, she loves watching me on CNN cuz I give them the business and I thought that I took a, I thought that was cool. The first lady watching me on TV. <laughs> the president said, "I Melania drags me in to watch you when you're on TV." That, imagine hearing that from the president of the United States. I'm just a kid from outside of Buffalo. So, yeah, it was a pretty big day. It felt like a pivot in a lot of ways. It did. It felt like, you know, all these things we've been through. It's a very solitary experience going through this investigation. I've learned a lot. A lot, I think, a lot of things that I think I can help, uh, things I can use in the future to help people, help others. You know, I don't know. I'll figure out why. But there's very valuable lessons in crisis communications and such. Because I've always, I've always practiced crisis communications, but I never could have imagined that I would have been my own crisis. And by the way, I, ne- I, I asked a friend of mine to help me with my communications. I wasn't my own PR person through this whole episode, through this whole horrible experience. It felt like a pivot, though, like something's going to happen. Something good's going to happen to us. My wife and I, my family, we are completely in the clear. We are vindicated. We are absolutely in the clear. There's no chance on God's green earth that we will be uh, in going through any more of this stuff. I know the House talks about how 
They want to bring me and others in to testify on Russian collusion. But we know from the Mueller investigation that nobody, no Americans colluded with Russians to, uh, uh, to manipulate the elections. We know that. That's already been decided. So I'm not going. Uh, they can subpoena me. I'll go. Uh, but I won't say anything. I will invoke my Fifth Amendment. I've said that now for weeks. It's funny how some reporters tried to insinuate that I came out of the meeting with Trump and said I wouldn't, uh, I would be giving, uh, taking the Fifth Amendment as if the president convinced me. I've been saying that since Nadler's letter came. My lawyer, uh, Dennis Vaco of Lippus Mathis, the former New York Attorney General, he told me there's absolutely zero reason that I need to go testify before the Democrats in the House. So yes, if if uh, subpoenaed, I will, I will absolutely take the Fifth Amendment. But I, it feels like a pivot. It feels like it. I'm going to figure out what's in front of me. I, I don't know. It's um, it's going to be interesting. The next stage of this whole thing, who knows what it is. But visiting the White House was a very cool way to, to do it with my family and with the president and the first lady being so personable and uh, welcoming to us and making us feel like it's okay. It's okay. You know, we lost a couple years of our life. Everybody did. The president and the first lady, too. We lost two years of his administration. But let's see what goes next. Investigate the investigators, I told him. Boy, wouldn't that be great. This is Michael Caputo on Still Standing. Uh, stay tuned just for a second for these messages. I'll be right back. Thanks a lot for listening in. Remember, it's stillstandingpodcast.com. Still standing. Please remain standing. We'll be right back. Hey, it's Michael Caputo again here on Still Standing. Thanks a lot for waiting around. Uh, remember, stillstandingpodcast.com. You can catch all the content. It's, you know, you're also, also on radio.com, iTunes.com, all the other stuff, the usual suspects. I like Stitcher. That's pretty cool. Um, and uh, I was, uh, uh, you know, I'm also, uh, we have a, a, a plan, you know, we use the Patreon platform. We put our podcast up there as well you can listen to it on patreon some people support us a great deal there we're very very privileged to have the support of people we consider our uh executive producers uh like thomas garen bill grant brian pazdersky daniel markey darcy swenson george noonan greg mumbach jack bromwich jordan gunstomsky mark berry my old friend mark patty freeling Hi, Patty. Samantha Lynn, Sonia Carlin, Steve Flaminio, Susan Harvey, all these people are supporting us at patreon.com. Susan Stevens, Thomas Fulton, thank you for all of your support, Thomas. John Seifert, Julie, Rachel, and Roberto, all of our big supporters on uh, on patreon.com. Those are our executive, executive producers. This is very expensive to do for, for me because I'm kind of a technology fool i'm a captive of technology so i need professional help to get this stuff done so anything that uh, folks give us as a donation for ongoing service uh, at patreon.com that's really appreciated but i don't know i'll tell you uh i've been traveling quite a bit quite a bit i mean uh, i'm starting to speak at republican fundraisers republican party fundraisers 
to uh, college Republican clubs, Young America's Foundation clubs all around the country. And uh, and I, might have, I think I've done six or seven of them by now. I also do private ones like the, the New York State Plumbers Association, the guys who work on your plumbing and your HVAC. Very cool folks. Brought their families for their annual... Uh, annual conference in Naples, Florida. I got to go down there and speak with them. And I'm, I'm starting to get it down. Uh, I've always been writing speeches most of my career, so I get what speeches, how long they're supposed to be, what they're supposed to be comprised of, how you're supposed to read them. I've trained CEOs and presidents on how to read a speech that I've written. Uh, but it's different when you're doing it yourself. Just like it's different when you're doing it when you're doing it, uh, you know, doing your own public relations, you better not be your own lawyer, right? Better not be your own physician. But uh, uh, so I'm doing these speeches and I find the, the the time that I spend with you on the podcast is very, very helpful. The first time I gave a speech, well, not the first time, but certainly uh, one of the ones where I spoke by myself. I often tour and speak with uh, J.D. Gordon, uh, Navy commander, retired. Uh, who was also caught up in the jackpot of the Russia hoax? I'd like JD very much, and we do a kind of a, a du- you know, a dual speech and you know discussion with groups a lot, a lot. We really enjoyed it, doing it together a lot. But I've got it down from I think the first time I gave a speech to a group by myself, I I, I spoke for like an hour. Nobody left, and people were really interested to hear what really went on in the Mueller investigation, but. So I give it to him, chapter and verse. You know, I uh, I tell him, I take a Q and A session too, and I answer all the questions. You know, I've never done anything wrong in this. You know, sure, of course, I've been, been caught speeding and things like that, of course, and uh, made stupid mistakes in my youth. But I did, certainly didn't do anything wrong during the 2016 election. But so I got it down now to about 30 minutes. I give a 30 minute speech, which I'm uh, I'm you know I'm psyched. I don't use notes. I think, you know, I've been teaching uh, speaking skills and writing speeches, et cetera, for so long that if I believe if you have a script, just like the president believes, if you have a script, it doesn't seem as genuine. Now, the president never liked to speak off of the, uh, the teleprompter like he does now, but you really have to as president. There's too many details you got to put in there that people are waiting with bated breath to hear. But on the hustings, as you know, he, uh, before the election, he was always without a speech and without the uh, without the teleprompter until the very end. So I had 30 minutes, no notes. Uh, I take notes afterward, trying to remember what I said and what needs to change. There are some things I realize the audience doesn't recall uh, from the Mueller uh, investigation or from the 2016 election or something that doesn't resonate well. I cut it back a little bit. Having a lot of fun doing that. I, I, I've live Facebooked it live on uh, on my account there and I think I'll probably start doing them live other places but uh, a piece of mail that came into the mailbag uh, from Darren Smilly hi Michael sorry I'm late finding your podcast and Twitter account I'm a fellow dead tour veteran from the deep deep south of the great white north just across the river from you <laughs> in St. Catharines Ontario St. Catharines deadhead hey Darren uh, chef by trade, I gave up cooking 25 years ago and started driving for a living. That gave me an opportunity to find you filling in for Sandy Beach or Bowley and Bellavia on WBEM. 
You're talking about the dead really was a game changer for me, and I'm not alone, I thought. I personally do not have any friends from those days who are not Bernie obsessed. Hearing your story over the course of time was both inspirational and upsetting at the treatment, harassment, threats, financial stress, and hardships you've had to endure. I pray that you will see the justice you should for all of this that has befallen you. I seem from your wiki that I that you are nine years my senior, and chances are we don't we didn't tour together, eighty nine and ninety. But I'm sure we danced to the boys together a few times. Eighty nine and ninety, by the way, Darren. Thanks a lot for your kind letter. I really appreciate it. Eighty nine and ninety were big big tour years for me. So maybe I started my uh, I saw my first Dead show in nineteen seventy six. I love the Grateful Dead. I I catch them now when I can. It used to be you know thirty times a year. That added up a lot, believe me. Uh, I, you wouldn't even believe me if I told you how many dead shows I've been to. A lot with Jerry Garcia, uh, Darren, as you, you you did too, if you were 89 and 90. After 95, there are great bands devoted to Grateful Dead music, usually made up of dead, you know, former dead ba band members. Like, you know, I love Bob, uh, Bob Weir. Bob's kind of my guy. I, I'm not a big fan of Phil, but I love to see Phil on tour. Uh, uh, that's not right to say. I'm not a big fan of Phil. That's not true. I love, I'd see Phil before I'd see anybody else outside the Grateful Dead. <laughs> but uh, yeah, uh, uh, I, I, I've always found the Grateful Dead to be absolutely, uh, totally and consistent with the early Grateful Dead. You know, people say, oh, you're a traitor to the Grateful Dead. You're a conservative, not a liberal. Everybody's a liberal who's a deadhead. That's just not true. The first three rows of every concert is, are, is filled with Republicans. <laughs> the first three rows. A lot of reasons for that. Mostly those tickets are really expensive. And the Republican deadheads, well, they actually have businesses and such. You know, think about it. Uh, the deadheads you know from the Republican side, Tucker Carlson, uh, somebody I used to see at dead shows a lot. Uh, and I could go down the line. I'm not going to drag anybody into this. But so I'm catching Bob Mueller, uh, uh, hopefully soon, uh, on, uh, on the the speaking circuit in Congress. And we have, uh, of course, William Barr today. I'm going to be right back after these messages here on uh, Still Standing. I want to talk a little bit about William Barr and what I see in the hearings today and what I expect in the weeks and months ahead. Stand by. I'll be right back with you here on Still Standing. That's stillstandingpodcast.com. Still Standing. But a question just been asking raises a point I wanted to say when Senator Hirono was talking, which is, it's, you know, how did we get to the point here where the evidence is now that the president was falsely accused of colluding with the Russians and accused of being treasonous and accused of being a Russian agent, and the evidence now is that was without a basis, and two years of his administration uh, have been dominated by the allegations that have now been proven false. Hey, welcome back to Still Standing. I'm Michael Caputo. Remember, you can catch our podcast, stillstandingpodcast.com, uh, brought to you like National Public Radio by your donations, <laughs> uh, mostly at... Uh, mostly, uh, I really appreciate all of it, but mostly uh, this stuff is happening uh, at uh, patreon.com. You can check us out there. You can actually listen to the podcast there at Patreon. Uh, 
So Bill Barr, I'm, I'm catching him as you are on today's uh, uh, United States Senate hearing. Now, mind you, that is a Republican-controlled Senate, so if he does go before the House, which he may not because the House has some ringer lawyers they brought in from Manhattan to question him, um, he's been making noise like he might not. And I understand why he wouldn't have to because he's supposed to be interviewed by the uh, the members, not by not by a lawyer. And uh, I understand he's got great standing to just basically tell them, no, I'm not doing it. I'd rather see uh, the, the likes of, of Nadler uh, interview him. And Nadler's no dummy. Uh, I don't see why he thinks he needs to have these ringers. But you understand that uh, Nadler, the chairman of the House Judiciary Committee, the Democratic chairman in the Democratic House, has hired for a lot of money these two attorneys out of New York City. One of them has been in touch with my attorney saying, to, trying to find out if I want to testify. The answer is no. But these are ringers. Uh, they, they brought them in. They're like, they're like uh, you know, guys they got off of waivers and they're top-notch uh, nut-cutting nut attorneys out of New York City. And they want to lose their hounds onto William Barr. And if I could avoid it, I'd probably avoid it. Why would you want to go sit down in front of these voracious hyenas working for the Democratic's uh, majority in the House Judiciary Committee. Those same attorneys want to interview me. I'm not going to do it. Uh, they're going to get a big five from me each time. But you watch Bill Barr in the Senate today and uh, across the uh, the uh, uh, the whole landscape of Congress before this and coming, and coming up. Everybody thinks that Bill Barr is a godsend. I understand why. Um, he's certainly so much better than Senator Sessions. I had a, a, a lot of complaints about him, as, a, as I guess you did too. But, uh, you know, from my perspective, Sessions was be pretty much frozen in place, frozen in fear maybe. Maybe they had his number in some way, shape, or form that we don't understand. But, uh, but certainly Bill Barr seems to be loaded for bear. He's already talked about the fact that he believes that spying happened against the campaign today. In, uh, in the hearing in the Senate a Judiciary Committee hearing, uh, instance after instance, you know, thing after thing comes up, and it's very clear that we're in for some more information, more information on the uh, politically commissioned investigation, how this whole investigation of the Trump campaign got started, when it got started, and what they were really up to. Because we know, I mean, I know, and you know, that there's a lot more to this than they're willing to even say, of course. So, you know, they basically commissioned an investigation of a hoax, the Russia hoax, because they disagreed with presidential candidate Trump on policy. And then they're, you know, groused about media coverage of that work. That's what that memo was, that memo uh, that, that we heard about in the, in the hearing today. From, uh, from Mueller to Barr, you know, all the media is dishonestly spinning it when they're right in the middle of this thing. They're saying that Barr misrepresented Mueller and his investigation and he needs to resign. Screw you. It's never going to happen. If that's what you think you're, first of all, you're highly partisan. You're also quite an idiot if you believe that. But, you know, this is just more of a game because within that same uh, uh, memo. Within, uh, you hear, read this sentence. When Barr pressed 
Mueller, whether he thought Barr's letter was inaccurate, Mueller said he did not think it was inaccurate, but felt that the media coverage of the letter was misinterpreting the investigation, officials said. Nothing was inaccurate. He was upset about the media coverage. Well, well, how about that? Sorry about that, Mr. Mueller. You don't get to care about policy, which is what your predicate for uh, all the FBI and the Department of Justice and all the different weaponization of the Obama national security operations. They don't get to care about the policy of, uh, the, uh, of the Republican candidate for president. That's something for the people to decide. No one in the Obama national security operation had any business doing anything about Donald Trump's foreign policy. If you disagree with him on policy, Mr. Mueller, that's too bad. That is not the FBI's job. That is not the special counsel's job. You disagree with him on policy, campaign against him, run against him, defeat him at the polls. It's none of your damn business in law enforcement what the president's policy is. And your opinion of the media coverage, Mr. Mueller, that's also none of your damn business. But here's the thing that people aren't really thinking of. Well, maybe you are, but you don't want to say it, but I'm just going to tell it to you straight. This was always the way it was going to go down. Always. Now, first of all, we never knew until recently that the Mueller report was going to come up with nothing. Well, I mean, I knew. Those of us who worked for the president actually were there. We knew there was no Russian collusion, but we didn't know how the report was really going to come out. We didn't know there was going to be a complete and total exoneration on collusion. A complete and total exoneration. Very clearly spelled out. No American worked with any Russians to uh, to to get involved in the American uh, 2016 presidential elections. None of us did. Nobody. Okay, great. Complete exoneration. They didn't. We didn't know it was going to come out that way. We had no idea. None. So here's here's the way I think it went down. From my perspective, Mueller really left a lot of innuendo on that report. A lot of innuendo. Even on my little deal on page 31, they left a little innuendo in there. They said that I talked at, for two minutes on a telephone call with a Russian uh, named Greenberg who offered me dirt on Hillary and we rebuffed it, right? Nowhere in that page 61 did they say that that person worked for the FBI for 17 years as an informant, that Russian. They just somehow left that out, right? So it's innuendo throughout that report. If they did that to me, they did that to a lot of people. There's no question in my mind. Now, Barr, Barr was always going to control the message when the report was done. Let me repeat that for you. When a special counsel completes his report, he gives it to the attorney general first. The first person to get an important report like that, one of the most important reports ever published by the Department of Justice, was going to control the message because they were going to release it as you know, Barr did very openly and very quickly, um, he had the opportunity to control the messaging coming out of it. That was always going to go down this way, and the Democrats hate it so much. But the fact of the matter is they didn't get a chance to spin this report at all. By the time they got their hands on it, the White House, and not really the White House, but certainly uh, William Barr, had already had weeks to, to get the message out that there was no collusion and the message out that he decided there was no obstruction. That was drying in stone. That, was, that, that cement was drying 
for weeks. And when the report finally came out, minimally redacted, the, the, the Democrats were out there trying to fight back against what was an overwhelming headwind. The Republican message, which had been had weeks to gain steam. Now, I'm a Republican. I'm here to tell you that was all those were always our cards to play and they were played well. If you don't like the fact that the Republican attorney general had the first crack at defining this report and we were able through our, uh, uh, you know, more what we believe to be more reasonable, reasonable perspective of this Russia hoax to put out a message that was able to dry in cement. If you don't like it, well, sorry, <laughs> not sorry. <laughs> that was always the way it was going to be. As a Republican, I'm, I'm, I'm not out there spinning for the White House saying, oh, well, this is the way. I'm not spinning for Barr saying, oh, this is the, you know, uh, right and proper. I think it's right and proper. But the matter of fact of all of this is this. The Republicans, if you know how the cards were being played and what order they would be played, the report was going to the Republican attorney general. The Republican attorney general was going to summarize that and put it out. The Republican attorney, uh, Republican attorney general was then going to work with the the Mueller investigators to redact the report minimally and then release the report. That is weeks, as we know now, because the report just came out. And in those weeks, the only one communicating was the attorney general. He was not going to carry the resistance message, people. If you expected William Barr to sound like Rachel Maddow, you're an idiot. <laughs> this was always going to go this way because of the way these and the, who was going to play the cards and when they were going to play them. And that's, if you didn't see that coming, you're a new guy. That's a fact. Uh, what can I say? You know, from my perspective, uh, uh, this whole report's going to wind down. The Democrats are probably going to try to impeach the president of the United States. He won't be removed by the Senate. And they will get their butts beat at the polls in 2020, the Democrats, because they decided to go forward with a suicide mission impeachment. That's the way I think this is going. Let's see you and I which way it goes. But I can tell you this. William Barr, I like him so far. I like the way he handled the release of the report. He played his cards very, very well. And you can tell because the leftists are crowing and screaming like stuck pigs. <laughs> oh, man. Haley Barbie used to say that. Squealing like a stuck pig. <laughs> squealing like stuck pigs right but at the same time you know uh i do not expect a big deal out of the inspector general which is coming soon the inspector general's uh investigation into things uh that we have not heard out of the Mueller investigation important things uh like uh, we may hear about FISA, we may hear about a lot of different things uh i don't think much much is going to come from that i can tell you from my experience my attorney has presented to the inspector general at the Department of Justice two different people who came to me offering me dirt on Hillary Clinton and offering me Hillary Clinton's emails. I thought they were suspicious. I turned them over to the Department of Justice inspector general. We didn't get any calls back. Not a letter, not anything. Nine months later, we wrote again. Nothing. Got nothing. People talk about uh, a, a U.S. attorney, Huber, out in Salt Lake City, how he's supposedly doing some kind of investigation. We went ahead and contacted him, told him about the two people, one a Russian, one an American, who offered me information that I thought was hinky. Not a word from Huber either. So if you think the, the IG or Huber are going to bring, they're going to unleash hell, I'm here to tell you, 
I'm not with you on that. But I have hopes with Attorney General William Barr. Hopes. I have no certainties. William Barr is a man of the institution. He will not burn the Department of Justice down. And frankly, I'm of the opinion that you might want to take a flamethrower to the place. Will he reform the place the way it needs to reform, be reformed? I don't know. Fundamentally, down to the cellular level, that place needs to be reformed. But, but, is he just going to, you know, toy around at the margins like an, any other highly political person would do and try and leave a legacy of going along and getting along as U.S. Attorney General? I don't think he's going to do that either because he's been here before. He's already been U.S. Attorney General under Bush. And that was, if that legacy was enough for him, he was a not a go along, get along guy, but he was a, you know, red meat law and order guy. If that, you know, if that should have been enough for him, he served honorably. Everybody liked him. He came in for a reason. And I watch him as he talks about spying on the campaign, as he talks about, uh, you know, leaves other hints during the hearings today. I think I smell something good. Someone's in the kitchen making a pie, a really delicious pie. <laughs> I can't have, I can't wait to see what kind of pie it is. William Barr, U.S. Attorney General, Master Baker. <laughs> I cannot wait. I do know this. The president's got something in for these people. He's got something in store for him. Ladies and gentlemen, after my discussion with the president on Wednesday, I am so excited. I wish I could tell every single person, certainly all the families who went through this as witnesses in the bogus Russia investigation hoaxes. You know, I, I just want to tell you, they're paying attention in the Oval Office, the president, the first lady. They know what's going down. They're paying attention. And I think we're all in for some really, really fun times. Anyway, Michael Caputo for still standing. It's been a long one today, but I missed you last week, and I promise I won't skip weeks unless I see the President of the United States. How's that, huh? Because I don't think that's going to happen an awful lot. Well, I'll tell you one thing. My wife and I felt great walking out of there. My kids, the photos we got, my kids are going to keep those forever. My daughter, Leo, was standing right next to the president at the desk with her arms akimbo, her elbows out and on the desk like the president does, her fingers interlaced like the president. If anybody in my family is ever going to be president, it's going to be Leah Gabriella because she struck a pose just as dignified as Donald Trump. <laughs> uh, that'll be a great day to remember for the rest of our lives. You have a great day. Michael Caputo for Still Standing. And right now, ladies and gentlemen... I am out. <laughs>